Welcome to The Rock Play, where we speak our truth, slay sacred cows, and sometimes agree to disagree. This is an outdoor podcast that aims for the head. I'm Colin True, and it's Friday, and that means that Mountain Gazette's Kyle Frost is here to dig into his newsletter that comes out every Thursday. What's happening, Kyle? Not much. Just waiting for this storm to hit in Colorado. It's been a very nice week uh, of sunny trail running, but uh, I'm ready to get back to actual winter. <laughs> Well, I can tell you right now, it is dumping rain in Southern California, so it's it's on its way. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man, well, we have a couple of newsletters to get caught up on, um, and I want to start this week. I know you wrote it last week about Stanley. We'll get to that. We'll chat on that a little bit at the end. But right now, let's talk about what you wrote about this week, which is the new legislation being introduced in Colorado, but could definitely have implications in other states. You're not just being a Colorado homer here. There's a proposed bill in Colorado that you wrote about that, if passed, would quadruple property taxes on short-term rentals and effectively move to make privately owned short-term rental properties on the same tax level as hotels. So in terms of property taxes, this is, of course, in response to the housing issues that exist in many Houghton towns, exacerbated by COVID, all of those uh, issues that have kind of culminated in this. Uh, Everything is incredibly cost prohibitive when it comes to affordable housing in in these, uh, I guess they're mostly ski towns, let's be honest. It's really where a lot of this, this is happening. So, but I guess to start, you know, why is this initiative being seriously considered as something that would be helpful to the larger situation in these mountain communities? Well, I mean, the, the stated goal is that, you know, a higher taxes or decreases in uh, the density of short-term rentals would increase the availability of, uh, of long-term rentals and uh, just pure real estate for locals. And so, like, it's, it's not a new conversation uh, about, you know, affordability in mountain towns, about the balance of, of Airbnbs and not enough room for seasonal workers and, and all that kind of thing. Um, it is a pretty significant uh, change. So if you go over 90 days, uh, your tax rate basically jumps from like around 7% to 29%. That's huge. Uh, which is massive. Yeah. And so for, you know, there's a wide range of types of people that this would affect. So, I mean, it, you're going to hit the same people that have, you know, their house and they're there three quarters of the time, but they rent it out, you know, one week out of the month or the, on weekends or whatever it is. And you're also going to hit the people that, you know, look at it as an investment and, you know, Airbnb at hundred percent of the time, or they own mm-hmm. 10 Airbnb properties or, or things like that, which uh, obviously, you know, aren't, aren't the most ideal for, you know, housing stock. I think the big question is, is, you know, will it work? <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it feels like, is this just treating symptoms versus cause? I mean, not that you can, and I know the cause is probably not simple either, right? Is this, is, is this an addressable situation? I, I mean, long story short is we don't know. Right. Uh, I, 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 I did a lot of research trying to find demonstrable data that shows that when you decrease short-term rentals, it increases rental affordability and, and housing stock. And there's one study that was in uh, Irvine, California, that they introduced regulations around uh, short-term rentals and reduced rental prices by 3%, which that's the only thing I found. Like, that's yeah. great. Right. But, you know, New York uh, also did, did similar things uh, a couple months ago, starting in September, that their new regulations essentially banned Airbnb and there hasn't been a change in available housing or rental rates or things like that. I agree that there should be some, there should be regulations on 
short-term rentals. Like it's not great if your entire housing stock is all Airbnbs, but I think mountain towns are in a particularly challenging situation where these are incredibly desirable places to live. They are geographically constrained. There's typically a lot of zoning issues uh, involved as well with building new properties and that kind of thing. So even if you do this, I'm not sure it's necessarily going to have the effect that we want or a large enough effect to matter. Um, it's hard to say. Yeah, I just look at the mountain towns and like you could probably sense my little bit of disdain for the way I read the opening. I just like they're kind of Disneyland at this point, like for the non-outdoor crowd. I almost feel like it's just everybody now understands, oh, you got to go to these places or I have a lot of money, so I want to buy a place there. And this just feels like even if this works a little bit, isn't it almost like, and again, I'm not speaking with any data points whatsoever. It just feels like a stay of execution. It's like at some point you have to let these things almost collapse on themselves and allow them to kind of rebound. Yeah, I mean, I would take a, a little bit of a less pessimistic view. <laughs> I don't want them to collapse. I didn't say I wanted them to. <laughs> just I mean, but I think it's going to take a lot of, I mean, to be on trial and error, and it's yeah. going to take like very specific moves to make them even reasonably balanced economies, right? Right. Because the the trend that we're heading towards is, you know, okay, let's say these regulations price people out of the Airbnb market because they can't afford their mortgage because the property tax is so high. Great. Okay. They put it on the market. Who's going to buy it? Like that that condo is still in Breckenridge or Frisco or yeah, yeah. Preston Butte or, or, you know, Steamboat or wherever Or Park City or Tahoe oh, or yeah. Leavenworth or okay. what, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I did have to apologize. I need to apologize to the Mountain Gazette audience for writing too much Colorado-centric stuff. No, but, it, uh, look, it's a Colorado legislation, <laughs> but like you said in the article, and like yeah, it, it, it this, affects, this is, yeah, I'm sure everyone a, everywhere is looking to see what happens with this because if it, yeah, yeah, if it works, yeah, um, yeah. But so let's say, I mean, it goes in the market. You know, the same issue is going to be there. Like it's either going to get bought by someone that doesn't care, that has enough money to not care about the property taxes yeah. and just use it as a vacation home that they only visit, you know, two weeks out of the year, which is most of Vail. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. I, I think it's it's South Lake Tahoe, that like 44% of homes are empty most of the year. Like, right. This doesn't solve that problem. And when most of your housing stock is sitting empty, great. Like it, prices are just going to go up over time because that's what they do. Sure. And, you know, that's not increasing availability for seasonal workers and that kind of thing. We're not building a ton of new stuff. No one wants to densify mountain towns, mm -hmm. uh, even though that's probably one possible way to address this stuff is had you know deed restricted uh and more dense uh housing that's targeted at seasonal workers and locals and, and things like that but yeah i mean it's a really challenging balancing act yeah i guess what i look at it as if i put myself in the shoes of an owner like if i own one of these homes it feels like a bit of overreach like you know hey well it's my house let me do what i want with it and at the same time, like, look, I tell you, after raising three kids, like punitive kind of, you know, consequences doesn't typically work. 
So if you're so if the issue is like, hey, these things are just sitting empty, for example, and you mentioned this in, in the article too about vacancy taxes, it just kind of makes more sense to me because you can sense an opportunity in that. It's like, hey, you you're, you're gonna have if you want to maintain your seven percent tax rate, you got to fill up your place, right? Like go fill it up, and that might make more sense than, instead of saying, well, okay, I'll make all this money short term Airbnb. It's like, well, I'll sign six months leases or something. You know what I mean? Like create yeah. opportunity for people to kind of ease into this versus just you know, fuck you, high tax rate, because you have a house here now. You know, I don't know. It just, it feels a little like, I guess this is what, these. I'm sure this is what people will be thinking about when they go to vote for this, I would imagine. Yeah, and like, I don't like, you know, Vail's a perfect example, right? Of like, yeah. it's just a, a valley full of multi-million dollar houses that yes. are empty. And, you know, Vail, like you, you're not going to be able to change Vail unless you do something pretty drastic. I, like there, I wrote yeah. about the bighorn sheep and the veil trying to build some affordable housing mm-hmm. a while ago. And like, you know, that's one possible way to address things. But like most of the land in Vail is taken up by, you know, five, six million dollar houses or more that are empty. And n- nothing you do is going to change that unless someone or municipalities take like a very strong stand about the type of community that they want to be Mm -hmm. and say, Hey, like we're going to tax you a shit ton if you're not living here. Wow. All right. Well, you see, you list four kind of potential outcomes of the situation. You know, the first one is, you know, the new regulations, you know, lead to the short-term rentals, a sell-off of the short-term rentals, increase available housing supply. And I got to think that's hopefully what they're hoping for in this, right? That that, that would be the, the most desirable scenario, outcome. Is that, you know, there's more, there's more stock for long-term rentals or rental prices go down or in locals, people that are living in these places, uh, you know, buy, buy the real estate. The other three you list, you know, availability drops, um, hotel prices increase, particularly, you know, mountain towns where supply is constrained, then you have owners that can afford the changes, will rent just just under the maximum days. You know, newly available supply gets snapped up by folks who have more than enough money to not care about tax rates. All of these things just sound more likely to me based yeah. off of kind of like the history of like rich people in mountain towns. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I don't disagree. I mean, you take away... <laughs> I, there's a lot of Airbnbs in mountain towns. Uh, I mean, some of them have quite stringent regulations already, um, but it is part of the, you know, when you're calculating the, the tourism capacity, like it's, it's part of the calculation. Yeah. And if that goes away, uh, you know, there's not that many hotels, uh, you know, in, in mountain towns. Um, and, you know, there's, prices are going to go up uh, because demand goes up. Uh, you know, that seems like a pretty likely scenario. Uh, and then, you know, as far as renting under the number of days, like basically there, the, the cutoff here is, is 90 days, I believe. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you want to go to 89 days, I'm going to rent in, you know, December, January, February, when everyone's skiing and, you know, make as much money as I possibly can. And I'm not going to rent it the rest of the year. I don't know, man. This is just a tough one. I just feel like this is just going to be one of those in 10 years, you know, we'll be sitting here talking about like, yeah, I remember when ski towns used to make a lot of money. Uh, and now there's just ski resorts that people drive to every weekend. Yeah. And you know, the price of skiing has, has gone up. I know like I, I I'm not a veil icon, like, you know, you know, these people are like the epitome of evil kind of person, but like, <laughs> you know, passes have both made skiing more affordable and also, right. or, and also, you know, 
learning skiing and getting introduced to skiing is extremely expensive. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you want to take your kid up and for a couple of days a season, instead of, you know, buy a season pass for your whole family. If that continues to go up, if, you know, housing t- continues to go up, if hotels continue to go up, just makes it harder to be out there. So people yeah. aren't, um, you know, and w- what happens then? Like, you know, then when the numbers stop going up into the right and, you know, Vail starts seeing decreased skier visits and Altera starts seeing decreased skier visits because stuff is so expensive, you know, what happens to these towns then that have come to like rely on that? Maybe, I mean, I think the great question is, is do these towns need that level of tourism mm-hmm. or is there going to be a correction to something that might be a more sustainable balance rather than more and more and more and more and more every year. All right, let's move on, man. I guess, you know, we'll have to keep an eye on this one. I'm sure you're, I can't wait to hear, I know you're doing a a mailbag next week for Mountain Gazette. So I'm I'm really hoping between the the wolves and this one, you definitely get some, some feedback. We can, uh, we can maybe read a few things on the show the next time you're on. But last week you wrote about Stanley. So, which has been in the zeitgeist. I mean, last summer, last fall, when it really started to pick, pick up steam, and, you know, your newsletter tracking their ascent was kind of perfectly timed. At the same time, there was a uh, the Atlantic's Derek Thompson posted in one of an episode of his podcast about it. And then, of course, SNL made fun of the trend on last, on last week's episode. So what was it that made you want to dig into the whole Stanley craze? I mean, it's just always entertaining to see, you know, uh, an outdoors company all of a sudden reach the mainstream. <laughs> Critical mass. Critical mass, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And be literally everywhere. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting story because it is like a story of successful reinvention and, and marketing. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the CEO of Stanley used, was the guy behind the Crocs resurgence a couple years ago. Yeah. Which likewise was like, what, like, I thought we were done with Crocs, but now they're bigger than ever. And, you know, he came into Stanley and recognized that, uh, you know, having that kind of greenish, you know, military camper color uh, wasn't that appealing outside of a very core outdoor consumer and introduced colors and uh, limited edition colors and worked with uh, women influencers and and that kind of thing. Yeah. The whole Mormon mom thing was incredibly fascinating. Oh yeah. It's so smart too. And just executed on that and, you know, got lucky a little bit with the whole TikTok car on fire situation. (laughs) And here we are. Although I will say, you know, I wrote that whole article article, just kind of poking a little bit of fun at how, how ridiculous it was. But, you know, since I published that, there's been a whole thing about lead in the the bottles. (laughs) Yeah. I wrote that down. That now. And I'm like, I didn't know this, this hadn't happened. (laughs) Well, you know what's well, you know what's funny is that I found out the lead through the SNL sketch when I think with Tidy Gardner it was like, oh, it t- mine tastes like lead or something, and I'm like, is there a thing with lead? And then I googled it, and I'm like, oh, it's the, that whole deal. And now Hydroflask is, you know, on their social media, like we have never we we pioneered the non-lead vacuum seal. I guess for the listener, if any, if you're not familiar, that they, it's part of the process to create the insulative properties of the vessel. They use lead for some whatever reason, but it's all contained and sealed and it does not leach into what you actually drink from. But I remember I had a... This isn't a Beethoven scenario where we're all going to get lead. (laughs) It's a... Yeah. If you knew that and everyone's just drinking lead, I think they'd be be hearing more about it. It reminds me when I was at Probar, it came out and 
ProBars, uh, the main binding agent for the bar was brown rice syrup. And it came out that there's arsenic in brown rice syrup. And then there was like a two week media storm about like, oh my God, everyone's eating, you're eating arsenic. Bananas or something like. It's in everything. Like if you dig up dirt, there's arsenic and that it's a naturally occurring, you know, element or compound or whatever it is. And so it's just, this feels very akin to me. Like you have to like really fuck up your Stanley and then drink from it. (laughs) Apparently a lot for it to have any impact on your health whatsoever. Well, it's just a reason for people to, you know, throw away their Stanley Cups and get another identical one. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Well, because they're going to come out now probably with the non-lead version. Oh, yeah. To try and keep it going. I do want to, like, pick a... I don't like that we keep saying Stanley Cups. It's like, that should be, like, trademarked by the NHL. I hear Stanley Cup, I think of the Stanley Cup. (laughs) I don't think think of my drinking cup, but... I I, I definitely confused a couple people when uh, I told them what article I was writing about. And they're like, oh, that seems like a weird topic for you. (laughs) Mountain Gazette. Oh, weird. (laughs) Hockey, okay. I do think that there's going to be a big crash coming because anytime you see any of these brands on these meteoric ascents, you know, I was there a little bit of Timberland at the tail end of the yellow boot when that kind of rocket ship took up and, and getting there and everyone was still kind of riding that high. And then the trend switched to sneakers and just fell off a cliff. And then I was thinking about the Vibram Five Fingers where they had that 18 month, you know, 2009, 10 to 11, 12 where I was actually working retail back then for a little while and like in a, in downtown Boston and like just the most like city focused kind of uh, stylistically city focused individuals coming in and just buying every color of Vibram five fingers and to wear around in like downtown Boston. And then everyone realized you're wearing toe shoes and that trend fell off. You know, I think it's probably gonna be something similar in the next few months here. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the like mega hype will die down. Yeah. I, I do think it's enough of like a core purchase kind of thing. Like it's just always there. People they're great for gifts. Like people are always looking for some random little thing to give for Christmas and birthday sure, right. and stuff like that. And companies give them away as swag and that kind of stuff. Like, I don't know. One of my favorite facts about the outdoors is, you know, that Yeti makes more money selling drinkware than they do coolers. Uh, like 250 million dollars more wow i didn't know that that's a lot yeah that's huge it's like it's like uh i think it's like nine nine hundred and fifty million to six something six six hundred something million and like that number has increased significantly the last like five five years like it's not like that kind of thing is going down i have no idea i haven't looked hydroflask is kind of hard to take a look at because it's all kind of wrapped up in hell of troy and mm-hmm. It's a little bit harder to get to, but you know, if if Yeti is also selling nearly a billion dollars in cups, like I think Stanley's going to be okay. I think the thing to focus. Went, on I mean, they went from seventy, like like they went from seventy five million to seven hundred fifty million. Amazing. I feel so, bad for their sales reps and the comps they have to have make this year. You know, to kind of their yeah. year over year sales. Good luck, guys. You know. <laughs> I mean, I on the other hand, I think the CEO is going to be out of there in like. Uh, a year or two like oh i'd quit proactively got job accomplished (laughs) like i'm gonna take my bonus and and exactly thing i'm gonna reinvent so i'm not gonna wait for this like the level off at like you know a buck 50 or wherever they settle out you know when it comes down off this high they'll still be bigger than they were before but not quite as big as they are now you know i'm gonna peace out and go to (laughs) you know introduce a pink coleman stove or something like i hear solo stove is hiring (laughs) (laughs) do 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 you own a, a, a stanley bottle do you have one do you have a stanley I don't think I don't think so. No. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. 
I have yeah. an Algin that is pretty beat up and taped and I use that a lot. <laughs> I'm not a straw guy, number one. Number two, I don't want to handle. I don't understand like the handle. Like if I sit there with my like my, my coffee mug, I'm fine, but like that's you know, I'm okay with it. I also mug. don't need hot like I, I don't really care about having hot stuff or anything like that ever. So like yeah. the Algin is usually good for me. Yeah. Uh, and I have like a small, I don't remember which brand it is, like a small coffee one. Yeah, I have like a small hydro flask for like road trips or whatever. You want to fill it up with coffee yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, me too. But well, good on you, Stanley. Um, all right, man. We can wrap it up there. So next week you're out, you're headed to Blister Summit. I am, yeah. That's exciting. I am excited to I haven't been to Crested Butte in a while, so that'll be fun. And check out a bunch of new ski gear and talk get, to some interesting people and get Cody Townsend's autograph, you know. Hey man, like get I don't it. know. Cody talks about I I, I I'm for sure going to talk to Cody, but again, uh, he's one of the most interesting people in the outdoor industry. Right he now. really is. And I usually like really kind of shudder at most outdoor athletic personalities, not because they're not great people because it's like, you know, I got great. I'm sure you had an interesting life, but he really makes it. He's an interesting interview when he speaks on camera, he owns it. You know, I, I definitely, I'm a fan of the 50. Yeah. I'm all in on Cody for sure. Doing anything fun this weekend before you head to the uh, summit? Um, I don't know. It's supposed to snow a bunch. So, you know, it's the constant Colorado calculation of how far am I willing to drive and how much traffic am I willing to deal with? All right, that's the show for today. But before you click us off, please open up the podcast app where you are listening and tap the follow button to subscribe to The Rock Fight and also leave us a five-star review. Big thank you to Kyle for coming on the show today. You can subscribe to his newsletter and the Mountain Gazette by hitting the links in the show notes. Also, come back tomorrow as Mountain Gazette's Mike Rogie will be filling in for Justin Hausman, who's out on vacation this week. The Rock Fight is a production of Rock Fight LLC. I'm Colin True. Thanks for listening. And here to take us out is my guy and yours, Krista Makes, with the Rock Fight fight song. We'll see you next time, Rock Fighters. Rock Fight!